Hey, welcome back to Open to Truth, a podcast all about exploring big ideas and discovering truth together. My name is Tony, and Clint and I are so stoked to have this week's guest on the show. This week, we spoke to Brian Zand. If you don't know who Brian is, he's the pastor of Word of Life Church, and he's also the author of several books, including Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, which is a cheeky play on Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, And it's a book that I found personally really impactful. And in this week's conversation, we talk about violence and how Christians should think about it, uh, when or if we should engage in it. Uh, and we talk about different atonement theories and how one's understanding of the atonement can shape our conception of God and are some better or worse. We touch on hell and sin and the character of God, whether or not Jesus had to die, all of those sorts of things. So uh, stick around and enjoy the conversation. Let us know what you think. As always, if you have comments, or questions, feel free to write into the show. You can do that at opentotruth.com uh, or you can email us, opentotruthpodcast at gmail.com and we would love to interact with you. So if you've got something to say, join the conversation. Uh, and Without further ado, here's the conversation we had with Brian Zond. All right, well, welcome to the podcast, Brian. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, it's Absolutely. our pleasure. Yeah. And so, uh, as you might know, our audience consists largely of folks who are on this journey of reconstructing their faith after going through, I don't know, some tough experiences, confronting challenging ideas to their more traditionally held views. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have a couple of questions from our cool. audience that we'll get to in a little bit, but just so our audience gets to know you more, and I'm sure a lot of them are familiar with some of your work. And we have uh, one of your books behind us, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And that one has a particular place in my heart because it it just was so accessible, mm-hmm. said things very clearly that I know I had been wrestling with for a long time. And I know Tony feels the same way. Yeah, yeah. That I found myself as I was reading that book, uh, I you can ask my wife, I would put it down and I would just cheer wherever <laughs> I was so that you had said, you had put language to what I had been feeling and suspecting for a while. Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful that, that that book came into existence and that you wrote that. So thank I'm you. I'm delighted it could do that for you. That makes yeah. me. I would love, I would love to know you've been a pastor. How long? 39 years, 39 years. And <laughs> I mean, okay. yep. I mean, officially 39 years. That's when we said, okay, this coffee house thing is now a church. Mm. But it, but I was that was when I was 22, so I'm 61 now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I started this thing when I was 17. This coffee house had been turned into a church, so I've been doing the work of a pastor longer than I've been an adult. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which yeah, is wow. a crazy thing. But uh, and I don't recommend it. It's not a pattern to follow or anything <laughs> like that. But it's what's happened. So I've done it all of my life, longer than my adult life. So. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And so having been in ministry for that long, um, what, when did this book start to bubble up inside you? And was there a catalyst mm-hmm. for that? Was there well, some event? I'll, or... I'll take you behind the curtain. Yeah, please. Uh, here, here's the thing. I, I, I don't reveal this in the book. I don't tell you this is the impetus. Mm. But I've already written a number of books books on forgiveness, books on uh, 
the incompatibility of waging war and following Jesus and beauty will save the world, other books. And, and I knew that I was building an audience of people who are sympathetic to what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. They have a kind of instinct. I, th- I think I like what I'm hearing here, but what about? Mm-hmm. And these are people that still uh, rightly want to hold on to the scriptures and, and they're, they're inclined to believe, I think God is good. Mm. <laughs> I think God is love. <laughs> yeah, call me crazy. Yeah. In fact, I will take it so far as to say, I think God is not angry, violent, or retributive. Mm-hmm. But what about? What about Old Testament violence? What about the fear of God? What about the wrath of God? What about the violence of the cross? What about hell? What about the supposed violence of the book of Revelation? What do we do with that? And so that really, this book is me answering questions that I had encountered, actually, but that I knew that there were a lot of people out there that were in the what about stage. and, And really, the only people that really didn't like that book would be people from the reformed camp who are deeply committed to an angry, violent, retributive God. And I knew they wouldn't like it. They, they, mm-hmm. They're not ready for it. But mm-hmm. for those that were, it was just me responding to those questions. So how, how do I hold on to my Bible as something, you know, authoritative within my life and faith and still believe that God is not angry, violent, and retributive, but perfectly re- revealed in Jesus Christ. So that's that's what's behind the scenes. That's how that book came about. Yeah. And my, my, the, the title was just kind of a sermon. And not just kind of, it was a sermon. Yeah. And to me, it was, it was like a non-serious title for a book. I just, I just, I just, it was a throwaway sermon, I thought. And I was already just working. Just for our on audience's it. sake. It's a it's a play on the title of Jonathan Edwards' famous right. sermon, "Sinners which, in the Hands of an Angry probably God." Probably the most influential s- sermon informing the American religious imagination in our mm-hmm. history. And but it was my agent, my literary agent, that said you should call the book "Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God." I'd already used that title for a sermon, and she said, "Andrea said you should use that for the mm-hmm. book title." And I thought, "Really?" She said, "Yeah, really." I said, "Okay." And I think it turned out to be a good move. Oh, I think so. That's the right choice for sure. So, okay, you wrote this book in order to answer questions you saw other folks having these what about questions. Yeah. When did when did Brian Zahn start having the what oh, about questions? Okay. Well, that's a different, that's a different question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe that was the original question. Um, no, I, both are interesting to me. Well, yeah, my background is the Jesus movement. Um, I came to faith when I was 16 in a very dramatic way, kind of overnight mm-hmm. went from being the high school Led Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak. And wow. that was, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's, and, and that's by the time I was 17, I was leading a ministry that by the time I was 22 turned into World Life Church, the church I still pastor. And we were small for a long time. Then we got real big, real fast. And that was all exciting. Um, but it brought its own challenges. And I, at about the age of 40, so this is 99, coming into 2000, I began to have this sense of dis-ease, mm-hmm. of being uncomfortable, of being dissatisfied. 
I, it wasn't a crisis of faith regarding Jesus Christ. I mean, I know some people go through that. I didn't. I, I, but I, what I was encountering was the idea that the Jesus that had captured my heart so long ago deserved a better Christianity than I knew. Mm. Because what I knew felt thin. It felt weak. It felt too American. Uh, it, I, I just thought I, I needed something more robust. And I began to read church fathers, began to read philosophy, began to read uh, church history, kind of just, and also maybe just the canon of Western classical serious literature. And this and is that, around the year 2000, it sounds right, like if I have the timeline, right? right? Yeah. Maybe at the, maybe not the absolute pinnacle of American patriotism, but there's a lot going there's on. There's a lot going on. Quickly yeah. after 9 11. Yeah, exactly. For sure. And I sort of did that without revealing what I was up to. I was reading, I was, I was, I was mostly just reading church fathers, philosophy, and literature. Uh, but it, in 2004, it came to a crisis point where I just thought, well, I, I've got to have, I've got, something's got to happen here. Because I felt like I was kind of living in two different worlds. Yeah. And, well, and you're still presumably preaching every Sunday or well, close to? I mean, yes. Every Sunday, every Friday. I mean, you know. While your thinking is changing on this stuff. Right. From 2000 to 2004, you probably wouldn't have noticed it yeah. much because it was still internal. But in 2004, I started going public and also just had some breakthroughs. I began to really find some more contemporary theological voices. I began to read a lot of N.T. Wright, mm -hmm. Carl Barth, reading Stanley Hauerwas, Walter Brueggemann, mm -hmm. and on and on it goes. And began to read, uh, because because everything had been, I was reading Church Fathers and Philosophy and a little bit of literature. 2004, I really began to dive into more contemporary theological voices. And... Um, and I was reading five, six hours a night and wow, never devouring it work, never seeing it work, but rather feeling like I was, I had struck gold. Mm. <laughs> couldn't pull that out of the ground fast enough. Mm -hmm. And um, that changed me, changed my theology, changed my preaching and put me on a whole different trajectory. Uh, I told the How'd church, the church that, respond to that after that, 18 years of that's well, what I was going to ask. Funny you ask. Uh, yeah. I can remember the Sunday in 2004 when I told them I was packing my bags from the charismatic movement because word of life would have been described. We, you know, again, as in the Jesus movement, that kind of led us into the charismatic movement, which I describe as good until it wasn't. Okay. Um, and the charismatic movement kind of just leads us into word of faith. And, you know, this is over decades, right? Religious right, all of that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then in 2000, I began to feel uneasy about it. And by 2004, I'm ready to make a break with it. And I remember telling the church that I was packing my bags and moving on from the, from the charismatic movement. Packing my bags meant the good stuff I'm going to keep. Mm -hmm. But as far as really being defined by what... Uh, American charismatic Christianity has become. No, I'm moving on. Now, I did it with enough rhetorical skill as a and preacher charisma. that they all, you know, applauded and amen and they were excited until I actually did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then they oh, were he was serious. 
And there were various issues, but the issue by far, by far, that stood out the most was when I began to critique American religious nationalism and began oh. to challenge that. And that, my friends, enabled me to lose a thousand people <laughs> from my church. So I used yeah. to be invited to speak in church growth conferences, and <laughs> but I do get invited to talk about Jesus a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and I can so imagine that was, a, that was a painful time. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I laugh and make jokes about it now. And by the way, I'm fine now, so I'm okay. I'm healed, Good. and we're doing fine. But that was a painful time. For oh me. yeah. 2004. Well, it's about 10 years, really. I mean, it was about that long for us to really transition the church. And I'm in a town of, you know, I mean, 100,000 people, if you really count everything around here. And so if you lose 1,000 people in a town of 100,000, mm-hmm. what does that mean? It means if you go to the grocery store, you see them. Right. Yep. And these are people, you know, that I'd done life with. Maybe I had, maybe I'd led them to Jesus when we were teenagers, mm-hmm. all right? And maybe I'd, I'd married them and baptized them and baptized their kids and married their kids. And they were leaving because uh, the cognitive dissonance of having to choose between how I was proclaiming the gospel and what they thought was an easy alliance with their nationalism it was just too much for them to bear. And mm-hmm. so they left, often angry, saying that I'd backslidden, which, you yeah. know, for me was the craziest thing because I think, I'm thinking, I think I front slid. Yeah, <laughs> right. I'm moving closer to Jesus. And uh, so that's one version of telling that story. I mean, I, I, I tell the story most clearly in kind of a memoirish book called Water to Wine. Oh, okay. And that's that's where you'll get most of the story is in right. okay. a, a book called Water to Wine. A lot. I mean, I just wrote it for whoever would read it, but it's been amazing to me how many pastors have read it. I've heard literally. I'm not exaggerating. I've heard from hundreds of pastors who've read that book, and and they all basically say the same thing to me: say you you are putting my experience into words. Yeah, and. Um, I, I was more public with it, and maybe people already kind of knew who I was. Um, but anecdotally, I can say there's a lot of pastors that are in the process of rethinking an awful lot right now, especially yeah. those who are maybe like you know 20 years younger than me. So you mentioned that like a flashpoint was how your, I guess, new reimagined portrayal of the gospel or the good news had this implication about American nationalism. Maybe we can get to there in a moment. But just back up to this, what is this? What was this new way of preaching the gospel or the good news that led to some of these changes? What's this new way of packaging it? Yeah, that's that's good. What is the good news, yeah. and how have you come to understand it now? Seems like a foundational yeah. question to get right. The good news is the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't talk about anything else. Jesus didn't engage in any other activity. Quite literally, without exaggeration, without hyperbole, I can say that everything Jesus said or did was an announcement or an enactment of the kingdom of God. So if you ask the question, what is salvation? Salvation is the kingdom of God. Um, 
what Jesus tends to call the kingdom of God, this is a phrase he uses over and over and over, Matthew's uh -huh. gospel, kingdom of heaven, uh, and what Paul tends to call salvation are the same thing. Jesus mm -hmm. doesn't use the noun salvation, but I, don't th I think twice. Paul right. uses it repeatedly. Paul rarely uses kingdom of God now and then, but not very often. But he's always talking about salvation. Here's the thing. They're talking about the same thing. Hmm, but what happened at some point along the way, and maybe we can talk about this too, salvation got reduced down to what I would describe as heaven and hell minimalism. It became private and post-mortem. It was about how to go to heaven when you die. Mm -hmm. and, and not only that, for me, it was how not to go to hell. Yeah, that was the big one. Yeah, I just really don't want to go to hell. The good news was I don't get, have to right. go to hell now. Actually, yeah. you're right. The emphasis always was on hell. It wasn't yeah. really, I mean, heaven was a euphemism for not hell. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're right, exactly. Because we, I, I had a lot more descriptions of what hell is like than I ever had about what heaven might be like. Mm -hmm. It's just, I knew there's one alternative I really don't want to happen. Oh my. <laughs> Dramatized in little heaven, plays. Heaven, it doesn't matter. It's not yeah. hell. So it's I'll better than that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and, and see a real interesting moment for me was this, was, this probably happened in 2004. I don't remember the exact year, but I'm going to guess it was one day I sat down and I thought, well, what did the apostles say? when they preached what we call the gospel. And so I went to the book of Acts, and there's about eight sermons, depending on what you count as a sermon. But you can find them and you read them. And one of the things that really leapt out at me was that in none of those sermons do they make an appeal to afterlife issues. Huh? They just don't. Their gospel was this. There is a new kingdom. There's a new emperor. There's a new Lord. You understanding that Lord was an imperial title that belonged to yeah. Caesar. There is a new Lord, a new kingdom, a Them new of human society. It is built around Jesus, whom God has raised from the dead and has made him Lord. And in light of that, rethink everything and become a part of this new society. And as you do that, your sins are forgiven and you belong to a new way of being human. Their gospel was something like that. And I realized, man, we've gotten a long way from that. Now, here's what happened. This is more or less how the gospel was proclaimed and taught and embodied and the, the, the catechisms that would form people in this faith. This is how it was for the first three centuries. And then in 312, there's a civil war going on between two generals. Winner's going to be the next emperor of the Roman Empire. Uh, Constantine prevails, and for various motivations, he begins, this is at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, and he begins to um, he, he begins to adopt Christianity as a favored religion and then fast-tracks it towards essentially state religion. Uh, now, now, the legend regarding him, I don't think any of this actually happened, but the legend that came about later was that prior to the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, he had a vision where he saw a cross in the sky, and uh, the, the word said, in this sign, sign of the cross, you shall conquer. And so he applied, you know, the sign of the cross to the weapons and instruments of war and prevailed in the battle, and, and that's what, oh, you know, Christianity is the true religion. Of course, in the saying, 
in this sign you shall conquer. Conquer is a euphemism for kill. Hmm. In this sign, so in the sign of the cross you shall kill. And so Christianity moves from being a a nonviolent following of Jesus of Nazareth, where we embody the cruciform life. Where people go to their grisly end in the arena. Mm-hmm. To stand up for these right, the martyrs, right? To where we will take up the sword and, in the name of the cross, use the sword against their enemies. So, what happens is now we have a Christian emperor. Prior to this, Christians would say Jesus is Lord, and by implication, that meant and Caesar's not. Yeah, they would. They would just simply. They were simply being an alternative society within the midst of the Roman Empire. And they kind of would just lay low, you know. Sometimes they were conspicuous in their absence from the various festivals that would honor the patron deities of Rome. But they, you know, sometimes they're persecuted, other times they're left alone. But they're they're just going about their business of being this alternative society that is the kingdom of Christ. But now, coming in now to the fourth century, you have a Christian emperor, and it's like now everything's a little bit confusing. Well. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is Lord, but yes, so so is Caesar. He's he's, the, he's Lord of our how he said. Oh, he's he's Lord of our earthly life, our earthly kingdom. And what's happened is Jesus actually has been demoted. Mm-hmm. Jesus is no longer really Lord. We'll say he is, but he's not really. He has been demoted to the secretary of afterlife affairs. And it becomes now the task of Jesus to get us into heaven or out of hell when we die. But Caesar can continue to run the world. And now now, this was a mistake. The Constantinian catastrophe was a mistake. I want to be merciful, and I sincerely believe this. I think it was almost an inevitable mistake. I Mm. just don't know that the church of late antiquity had the resources to see what folly this would be and how terribly this would go off the rails. But what happens if you want to just sum over a lot of history real quick is that puts now this is the creation of Christendom. That is that, that is a, a geographic empire that is conflated with Christianity that puts Christendom, European Christendom on a trajectory that will eventually lead to millions and millions of Christians killing millions and millions of Christians in the name of their national allegiance. Mm -hmm. And so you see how terribly this has all gone wrong. So it was understanding things like that and preaching things like that. that, uh, Are you referring to some of the wars like in the 13 through 1500s in Europe? No, I'm speaking of World War I and World War II. I mean, there's some others along the way. But I'm not really talking about what is what is typically known as the wars of religion. I think that's a bit of a – I think we're being misled here. This was the emergence of nation states. Uh, and I think religion often became to blame for it. I'm just talking about when you get to World War One and World War II in the European theater, what do you have? You have baptized Germans, hmm. slaughtering baptized French, and, you know, it's – both I mean, thinking first, God's on their side, quote unquote. Everyone, everyone yeah, got Gutmint Unts, you know, on their belt buckles, and 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 both sides sincerely believe that God is on their side. I mean, they do. I mean, Germans, I mean, as I as I critique 
war, waging war as being incompatible with true discipleship to Jesus Christ. Of course, I always get World War II and Hitler and all that. Well, what about Hitler? I said, look, we can have that discussion. It's complicated, but you can't just throw me into the middle of it. You just can't throw me into, you know, it's 1940 and 1941. What are we going to do? Let's back up a little bit. How was it that Hitler was able to wage his blitzkrieg with baptized soldiers? Mm-hmm. I mean, if if the church in Germany had been true to what the pre-Constantinian church believed, Hitler could have never got anywhere. And 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 World War II is simply an uh, an extrapolation from World War One. I. I mean, without World War One, Hitler is what he's a fairly well-adjusted postal clerk that has a nice painting hobby. <laughs> but but it's it's out of the trauma of World War One. We have you know. Germany trying to deal with its shame and its humiliation and its economic deprivation. And it creates this perfect nexus for the rise of this maniacal dictator. Uh, but, but why world war one? I? I mean, you know, I mean, ask somebody what was world war one about? And I, said, I don't know. Some guy got shot in Sarajevo. And I don't remember. I don't know. It, it was, it was at, it was at the apex of religious nationalism and and people were, in, in European Christians were all convinced that God was on the, the German side or the French side or the British side. And uh, they were willing to go to war. And, and then we went through an entire century, the 20th century, of all kinds of, of blood being shed. So anyway, that, I, I, know, I don't think we're really here for a history lesson. But No, that's interesting how the church would be complicit in these historical wars and i'm sure moving forward that sadly that could be the case but i'm wondering now like what the corrective would be is that is that uh state of being complicit in these things a direct result of our theology in some way i know you're saying like um with the emergence of constantine and the muddying of those waters how, how do we fight against that what, what is a different type of theology or way of looking at things that can serve as a corrective? We have to see the kingdom of Christ as a present reality that we are to pledge our allegiance to. Um, we, either we see the kingdom of God or politics trumps everything. No pun intended. It's just the correct <laughs> word to use. Yeah, I mean, if we don't see, uh, for example, when I say the kingdom of God, or when when we when we read in the Bible the kingdom of God, part of the problem is that's an archaic term because we don't speak of kingdoms anymore. Yeah, so I think so people would what, think of heaven. What if I'm a yeah, reader? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they actually think, okay, this is this is how we're going to live when we get to heaven, mm-hmm. but we're here now. No, the kingdom of God is the government of God, the reign of God, the rule of God, the politics of God. Mm-hmm. Karl Barth said in 1930s, Germany, he made this statement, and, and then I have to unpack it. But he said, God cannot serve. God can only rule. Now, what he means, he doesn't mean that God cannot, you know, be incarnate in the humility of Christ and wash the disciples' feet. He doesn't mean anything like that. What he means is God cannot serve some other political interest because God has his own kingdom. And he's writing in a context 
of 1930s Germany where the evangelical or Protestant church in America is getting on board with the Nazi agenda. And what's happened is now that, and Jesus is being trotted out in sermons and propaganda as endorsing this. So we have, if, if as we read our New Testament, if we would just, every time we see kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, if we would translate that as the politics of God, the, the government of heaven, that, that's not the government in heaven, but the government mm-hmm. for here. So when Jesus is arrested in the garden, he has his religious trial before the Sanhedrin, then he's brought before Pilate, the Roman governor. And Pilate is not interested in what we would consider necessarily theological questions. He just has one question. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Because this is the issue he's interested in, because uh, the king of the Jews was appointed by the Roman emperor. The Herods are kings of the Jews only because Caesar says so. They're puppet Mm -hmm. kings. And so it's treasonous for you to claim to be the king of the Jews. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, it's as you say. Uh, but my kingdom is not from this world. It's for this world. Answer. It's not from this world. It doesn't come from the world of conquering kings and generals and wars and violence. It comes from the heavens, but it's for this world. And for this reason, I came into the world that I might bear witness to this truth. Whoever is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate famously says, what is truth? And then he leaves. And Jesus is taken away. He's scourged in the Antonia Fortress by the battalion there. And then he's brought back to the Roman governor. Pilate continues now his interrogation of Jesus. And now Jesus remains silent, doesn't say anything. And Pilate becomes frustrated. And he says, don't you know that I have power to kill you? I have power to release you. That is Pilate answering his own question, what is truth? Hmm. What, what Pilate really believes is the truth is the world is run by those who have the power to kill. Hmm. And the sooner you recognize that and acknowledge that that's the truth, well, then maybe I can release you and let you go. But you're going to have to acknowledge that. And Jesus hmm. won't do that. Jesus says, no, that's not the truth. That's a lie. And Jesus is the one that has come at the cross to rearrange the world. Instead of being organized around an axis of power enforced by violence, at the cross, Jesus refounds the world so that he gives us in his kingdom the possibility of a world organized around an axis of love expressed in forgiveness. That's why he said, if I'm lifted up, a euphemism for crucifixion, if I'm lifted up, I will draw. The Greek word really is drag. I will drag all people to me and give the world a new organizing principle. And so what do we do now? We who are the baptized are to live in the kingdom of Christ here and now. Now, I understand that there is the tension of the now and not yet, and it's not a fully realized eschatology, and we say, come Lord Jesus, but neither do we say the kingdom of God is not here. Uh, Rather, we live in the tension of the now and not yet. I think of the church as being the anticipation of the age to come in the here and now. Uh, We confess that there will be a time when Christ is all in all, and the kingdoms of this world will be fully the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Amen. But the church is already there. Baptism is a kind of time machine that hurdles us into the future. Think of it like this. 
if you well, this is pre-COVID illustration, but yeah. uh, when you go to a movie theater, remember movie theaters? We'd actually go with strangers and watch us. Yeah. So uh, when you go to a movie theater, and before the uh, you know the, the the main movie, you have all of the previews, you have the trailers, you have the coming attractions, and this is a this is a preview of a movie that's not here yet. You're going to see five minutes or so of it, and you're not going to get the whole story. You're not going to see the whole movie, but you're going to get an idea of what it's about. That's what the church is to be. We are to be the preview of that which is to come. If we are healthy, if we are living in fidelity to Christ and his kingdom, the wider world should be able to look at our churches and go, oh, I see where this thing is headed. I, I, I see the future in their communities. The problem is the church has been reduced by and large in Western Christendom not to being a prophetic agent revealing that which is to come, but serving as a chaplain to the empire, blessing Caesar's wars and, ass and assuring Caesar that God is on our side. Mm -hmm. So that work of Jesus that you were talking about on the cross of refounding the world on this new axis. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just wondering like, how, how is that accomplished? I, I don't mean to get too nerdy with it, but, um, I'm sure that, uh, I guess I'm, I'm just guessing there were other innocent people that the Sanhedrin and the Roman authorities conspired to kill innocent people mm -hmm. before Jesus. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that well, probably I mean, happened. Why, then, what, why didn't their death on a Roman cross accomplish some of these things? Yeah. What's special about Jesus dying in that way? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you're correct. I mean, one of the scandals of the cross is that Jesus was what, but one of three that day. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Right. We, get, we kind of get the idea that yeah. that um, that crucifixion was rare and exotic. It wasn't. <laughs> it was common. I mean, this is it was it was a form of Roman psychological terror imposed upon an occupied people. They did it publicly. There had been a slave revolt. Uh, we all know about Spartacus. And when that revolt was finally crushed, they took the slaves that had participated in that final battle against the Roman legions. And on either side of the road for 60 miles, every hundred meters, think about it, for 60 miles, every 100 meters on either side of the road, a crucified slave. Uh, something similar happened when Jesus was an adolescent in nearby Sepphoris, just a few miles from Nazareth. There had been an uprising, and that's what the Romans did. The Romans didn't, I mean, the Romans would execute, it was a brutal age, and they would execute you for all kinds of crimes, but they didn't go, you know, crucifixion is troublesome. You know, you got to... You got to find the wood, and, and it takes them along. Oh, art more really at the display. It's a big yeah. so. So if if somebody just committed, you know, run of the mill murder or far lesser crimes, you know, they'll just you know kill you with the sword, just dispatch mm -hmm. you as quickly as possible, so it's not a hassle for them. Crucifixion was reserved for those kinds of crimes that challenge the supremacy of the empire. Yeah. Okay. So. Why, why is Jesus' crucifixion different? Because thousands and th the, the Romans crucified tens of thousands of people. Why is Jesus different? Well, because Jesus is God. <laughs> mm -hmm. that, that Jesus is God. And this is the supreme 
self-disclosure of God. Now, the entire life of Christ, of course, is, as we confess as Orthodox Christians, small o, Orthodox Christians, of course, the big O confess it too, that 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 Jesus Christ is very God of very God, that the Word has been made flesh, that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully human. And so uh, in the incarnation, Christ takes on humanity, that he ultimately might heal humanity, but he's going to live the divine life as a human being, and it reaches its culmination on Good Friday when Jesus Christ is crucified so that Hans Urs von Balthasar, one of my favorite theologians, German Catholic theologian from the 20th century, said, being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. Hmm. And so this is the supreme revelation of who God is, that, that Good Friday is that moment when the sin of the world, think of it this way, coalesces into a hideous singularity. And the sin of the world with great violence is sinned into the body of the Son of God. But what happens? The Son of God says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, don't for a moment make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is acting as a agent of change upon the Father. That's not what's happening. Throughout the Gospel of John, all of them, but especially in John, Jesus says repeatedly, over and over, things like this. I only, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father say. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. So when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, he is not acting as an agent of change upon the Father. He is revealing who the Father is. So the cross is not what God inflicts upon Christ in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. So the cross is many things. It is certainly, it is the clearest revelation of who God is, as God of co-suffering love. It's where the sin of the world coalesces into a hideous singularity that it might be forgiven in mass. It's also the place where the principalities and powers are finally uh, humiliated and put to shame. Paul says that in Colossians hmm. and Corinthians. Um, how, why is that? How is that? How are they humiliated? In crucifixion, part of the humiliation of crucifixion was the shame of being crucified naked. Um, and it's so shameful, we still can't quite bear that. So even depictions of Christ crucified, we can't completely yeah, go uh -huh. there, right? And but, the, but it was. It was done that way because that was part of the humiliation, the shame of public nakedness. Paul plays with that very creatively, and he says, no, what happened at the cross was the principalities and powers, that is the very rich, the very powerful, the institutions they represent, the spirits that animate them, were displayed for what they really are. See, Pilate and Caiaphas and Herod representing the very religious, the very powerful, the very rich, mm -hmm. they would say, we have the right to rule the world because we are wise and just. And yet when the, when the just one, the innocent one, the one without sin came into their system. What do they do? They condemn him and crucify him. But ultimately, in the light of resurrection, it's not Christ that is shamed. That's his glory, in fact. 
who is shamed is the principalities and power because they're stripped naked. And all of a sudden we see they're not wise and they're, they're not just. Yeah. That's yeah. all just a ruse. That is their disguise. What lies behind all of that is their naked bid for power. And the cross reveals that and puts them to shame and glorifies Christ. So we as Christians now say, I am not going to pledge my allegiance to that which is nothing more than a naked bid of power for power that wants to continue to, to rule the world through the violence of the sword. No, I am drawn and attracted to the beauty of Christ and co-suffering love, and I'm, I'm going to organize my life, and I'm going to be a part of a community of people that organizes their lives around allegiance to this one who died upon the cross and then was vindicated in resurrection by the Father. Now, I'm going to guess, both of you grew up in all, that is not how you've heard the cross preached. Well, no, what I, what I heard, what I did not hear was something about Jesus, thank you for taking my pl my place, Clinton, yeah. on the cross. Yeah, how many songs have we sung about that? I've prayed that a lot yeah. in the past. Or, Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. In your story, you didn't mention Clinton's sins. Well, well this is, can I just follow up on that? I guess, yeah, I think this way that you're outlining what takes place on the cross is so helpful. I wonder what you would say in response to somebody who says, well, you're... Um, you're being light on sin. God has to punish sin. God can't just forgive. Sin demands punishment. And uh, if God's going to be just, he He has to do that. And lucky Jesus stepped in. So Father God doesn't have to punish you. You know, what do you, what do you say to that? How much critique? time do we have? But okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So a number of them. First of all, I'm not being light on sin. Right. I'm saying sin is revealed in all of its hideous reality on Good Friday, where Look at this mm. disfigured, tortured human being nailed to a tree. That is the innocent one. That is the one who is completely just. And this is what sin looks like. It does that. Yeah. Ross exposes human sin for what it is. But but you made an assumption in part of what you said. You said God can't just forgive. Mm -hmm. Who that? Who said that? What? What? Of course, God can just forgive. That's what God does. That's who God is. What it seems like that's what he's asking me to do. Too. Yeah, exactly. That's what he calls us to do. Presume that God is in fact penultimate. That maybe yeah. God is love, but God says, "Look, look, y'all. I'd love to forgive you because that's who I am. I'm a loving God. But my but hands are tied. I've got justice up here. I've got yeah. justice, and I've got a satisfied justice. And justice, whew, justice is a bloodthirsty God." Yep. And justice is going to demand blood. So I got when if, if that's the way it is, I'm like, well, who's in charge here? Yeah. Part of the problem is Westerners in general, Americans in particular, think of justice as retribution. As yes, as and, and is in opposition to love. It's like God is love, but He's also just. Remember that. And my thing is like, man, His justice flows out of His love. His idea of justice is. Well, totally all, different. What we should understand is that justice is setting right that which is wrong. Not, yeah, right. <laughs> not right. it's not vengeance. Yeah. I mean, so 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 let's let's play with it a little bit. Let's let's what is being implicit, let's make it explicit here. Yep. Is God saying, okay, look, I'm willing to forgive, but somebody's gotta die. <laughs> and they gotta be perfect. So are you up for this, Jesus? Okay, that's what you want, Father. All right. Um, now, now, 
can Jesus just die? And the God and God says, uh, no, no, no. He's got to be tortured. It's going to be painful. Can it be quick and merciful? No, no. I want I, I want a scourging. Uh, thorns. I, I want some thorns. The crown of thorns. I love it. Crown of thorns. Uh, and 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 if you start playing this out, people say, well, you know, some of it was God's will that Jesus had to die so that God could be satisfied, and some of it was just human cruelty. I said, well, how does this division of labor work? I mean, where's yeah. the line? It, uh, Jesus coming into the world, it was inevitable that he was going to die hmm. because our system was that evil and corrupt. Hmm. Rene Girard said, violence cannot, violence cannot tolerate the presence of one who owes it nothing. And, and it also becomes the portal through which Christ enters into death to destroy death by death. Uh, so the cross is a lot of things. But what the cross is not is where God was punishing Jesus. God is not punishing Jesus. No one has to die for God to forgive. Yes, Jesus' death was inevitable, but that's because of human sin, not because of some character trait of the Father. Yeah, I, th I think that's really important and because this is a new doctrine in the whole scope of uh, mm -hmm. of Christian history. This idea of satisfying the wrath of God—you see it primarily. It begins in one form of the Anselm, and then takes on the form that most American evangelical Christians know it through Calvin. Yeah, the Orthodox Church, Eastern Orthodox Church has never for 2,000 years understood the cross in that light and will simply say that is a wrong understanding of the cross. So, you know, our, our listeners, viewers, whatever, that that may think that I'm coming up with some sort of, oh, he's just came up with a new and novel and liberal, you know, interpretation of the cross. No, this is... It's not new. I mean, if, yeah. if you want to say that penal substitutionary atonement theory is the correct understanding of the cross, I don't believe it is. Uh, but what you objectively must say is, and it's, we didn't know this for the first thousand years. <laughs> and really, we didn't know it for the first 1500 years. Because what it is, is it is Calvin's understanding of the cross. It's not something that is patristic in nature. So, okay, one, one, my, one of my big questions coming away from reading your book was, okay, I'm, I'm on board with this uh, new or not so new way of looking at yeah, the cross and good news. Yeah. Um, but boy, and it might be just a problem or an issue with my translation, but there are a lot of words in the new Testament that seem to lend themselves to the penal view. Now, maybe that translation was compiled by people who largely think the penal view is correct, but you I'm have words like, case, yeah, sacrifice propitiation okay, dying for sins okay. ransom how do all we right. make sense of all those yeah all right, all right. let's take up what was the first one you used you, you used sacrifice. sacrifice sacrifice here's the problem we are as the bible is talking about sacrifice it's talking about a jewish concept of sacrifice not a pagan concept of sacrifice Oh, great. Unpack we that. are so far removed from a Jewish understanding of sacrifice that that which is dominant in our thinking is a pagan idea of sacrifice. That's why N.T. Wright calls penal substitutionary atonement theory a paganized soteriology. So, for example, okay. um, the Passover lamb in the Exodus story, 
what is going on there? The Passover lamb is providing the meal of covenant. The, the lamb is not being punished. Mm. They, they didn't say, now on, on the 14th of Nisan at twilight, you will make a little crown of thorns and jab it into the head of the lamb yeah, and, and, then, the lamb. And, then whip, and then whip it and then nail it and, and make it die over six hours. No, it, it, it's laying down its life to provide the, mm. the, the primary concept of sacrifice in the Jewish context is that which provides the covenant meal. For God and humanity to meet at table. It's not about a punitive judgment. It's not about punishing the lamb so that uh, a, a bloodthirsty God can be appeased. The second word used was propitiation. This is a tricky word, but it is the word, it, it's the word that in the Septuagint, I have to just happen to have that. You happen to have a Septuagint right there. <laughs> oh, translates the New Testament that is translated mercy seat, or think of it this way, place of mercy. That Christ, Propitiation is an English word that doesn't have anything to do with hilostrom. I, I don't want to try to say the Greek word. If you will, tr see what happens is people, they translate this word propitiation and then go to an English dictionary. That's not going to help yeah. you. Right. Think of it as mercy seat or place of mercy. Christ is the place of mercy. A very God different reading of the sentence. All, that's all the language. The sin of the world coalesces into one hideous singularity that it might all be, the, that God might have mercy on it all and forgive it all. Hmm. And then you use the word, okay, what was this, the third? Ransom. One? Ransom. Well, this is, this is, yeah, ransom was a, popular metaphor that the, the church fathers used to talk about the death of Christ. But who's being paid? See, we're assuming that, that the payment is being made to God and somehow, okay, no. They understood it as, this is, this is in Christus Victus theory, that in some way death personified as the devil was tricked. And that's mm -hmm. the language they use, tricked, into devouring Jesus, that, that, that he might go down into death and liberate. Let, let, me, let me do a version of Christus Victus using contemporary analogies, and I think this helps. This is, this is the idea of ransom. It's like this. Um, remember the movie Men in Black? Sure. Yeah. Now, now there's some profound theology in this book. <laughs> and, 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 and where this, is this going? I can't wait. At the, I remember at the at the at the climax of the film, there's a bug, and the bug is death, and the bug isn't with the bug in town. We'll keep our eyes on the moor, you know. And there's this this giant galactic cockroach, and you have uh, Agent J and Agent K. I get them mixed up. Who's who? But it's Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. And in the climactic moment, they're confronting this bug of cosmic death and remember how Tommy Lee Jones taunts the bug and he says, eat me, mm. eat me. And he does. And he devour. And you think, Oh, that's the end of agent, whichever it is, JRK. I get picked. I can't, can't keep them straight. Um, Tommy Lee Jones. But what's happened is the bug has made the mistake because, you know, he, he, because that's where he retrieves his gun and he destroys death from the inside out. Mm. Death was taunted into making the mistake of devouring Christ. 
Now, because Christ was human, fully human, fully human, means he's mortal, means he's capable of death. So whatever it means to whatever it means to die, God in Christ has experienced. But because also because Christ is also fully God, death cannot digest divinity. And so death is destroyed from the inside out. And this is this is the great Orthodox Pas- Paschal hymn that Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. So the, the, the early church fathers, they preached these tremendous imaginative sermons, and it's the drawing from Paul and another passage in Peter, where Christ goes down into death, but though not as a victim, but as a conqueror, and then leads out those that have been held captive in death, he leads them up out of death and into, into glory. And, and that's what's behind ransom. Okay. Did that all actually happen, like metaphysically? There really is a, a Sheol that Jesus went down to and rescued old souls. I, mean, I, I wouldn't want to just. That, I wouldn't put that fine a point on it, but it's how I like to preach Easter. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there is. I think there is something about how I, I would say it this way: uh, at the end of Ephesians chapter one, verse twenty-three, um, Paul says that now Christ is all in all, or some translations try to expand upon that, and they'll translate it this way. Christ now fills all things everywhere with himself. So that 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 now even death, Christ has filled all things, including death. So that for a human being to die is simply to encounter Christ as judge and savior. And so if you wanted to be like more theological about it, I would say it like that, but I but I do love the metaphorical language of the harrowing of hell, the yeah. distressing mm-hmm. of hell by Christ. That's that's what's going on usually in the church of the in the minds of the church fathers and their sermons pertaining to ransom. And then the fourth thing you said was died for our sins. Of course he died for our sins. Yeah. I mean, I mean I mean that I mean that the construction of a world around our sinful system is how Jesus dies. But I but think that's not, offered as like more individualistic. Between God and Jesus, where God says, okay, now I've seen the blood, I've seen, and now I've been satisfied. That is, that is to pit the Father against the Son. That is to do damage to the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, where is God found on Good Friday? Is he found in Caiaphas demanding a scapegoat? Is he found in Pilate demanding justice, which is in fact injustice? Because let's be honest, a righteous man dying for the sins of an unrighteous man is not justice. That's injustice. Mm-hmm. Where is God found on good? He's found in Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, forgiving the sins of the world. Okay, let's go here because it's one of your one. A uh, a what about that you mentioned earlier for which you wrote the book? Mm-hmm. I can hear some listeners wondering. Well, but Brian, you you must not have read all these Old Testament passages. Oh, you where the God character does things that seem violent. I don't know. Yeah. I was just reading uh, today. I think or yesterday. I think it's First Samuel twelve, the story of Nathan confronting David. Fifteen. Fifteen and uh. And then it says that God struck the child of David and Bathsheba Mm -hmm. and it later dies. Like, does God, 
it seems like this text is saying that God sh- strikes children with illnesses. Okay, well, let, let's start with the uh, the Saul passage. Um, that's First Samuel fifteen, and let's just let's let's be pointed about it. Let's see what the passage says. The passage says that <clears throat> that Samuel tells Saul to go annihilate the Amalekites. Men, women, children, and babies. There's four categories. And and it gives you the answer why. Why? Because centuries earlier, the Amalekites had refused aid to Israel as they were moving from Egypt to Canaan. Okay, so stick with me here. Mm -hmm. The Bible is saying... The Bible is telling a story. Let's put it that way. The Bible is telling a story about a Hebrew judge prophet named Samuel in the name of Yahweh telling the first king of Israel, King Saul, to go commit genocide against the Amalekites because of something that had happened four centuries earlier. And that he and that they and specifically they're told to show no mercy, no pity. You kill men, you kill women, you kill children, you kill babies. I mean, they didn't even, I mean, they made a distinction between children and babies. Right. I was thinking wow. about that. Yeah. All right. So now we stand and we look at that and we go, what, what, what do I do with that? Well, we can do a lot. Let's let's play with it. Let's start with this. Let me ask you this question. If God told you to kill babies, would you? <laughs> no, no. I would really question that it was God. I was hearing God. Only yeah. one answer to that question. Yeah. And that is no. Under I'm not going to kill babies. I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you could say it for a lot of ways. You could say, you could say, I, I, God would never say that. Well, but that's the story we're reading. So that's what we're working on. You could say, well, I, I don't trust myself to discern God that well. well. Okay, that's fine. Or I could, but I could just say, God, if I knew it was, if God came and said, Brian's on kill babies, I said, God, if you want to kill babies, you're going to have to kill them yourself. I'm not going to because you gave me a conscience and that would violate my conscience. Mm-hmm. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. But this creates the problem. And, and that's, this is the problem we're talking about right now. Okay. Mm. So we all know, I mean, come on. Do people see this or do they only hear it? Is this a, just only an audio? Oh, they'll podcast? see it. They'll, they'll see it. it. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Look at my, I hope I look okay. Uh, you look you're right, man. You look really good. Okay, so, <laughs> so this is the problem. You know, and you know that you know that killing babies is wrong. Okay, killing a killing a whole race of people—men, women, children, babies—is called genocide. That's a war crime. You'll end up in the Hague for that, right? You just the Nuremberg trials situation here. Mm-hmm. You know that's wrong, but you've got a problem because you have a text, and this isn't the only one, but this is one example where we're where the Bible tells a story of someone in the name of Yahweh telling someone else go kill all these people. Now you have three ways you can deal with it, and. I've really thought about this for years now. And there's only three. You have three choices. You may not like any of the three. Pick your poison then. But here's the first choice you can make. You can say, well, let's see. I think I'm going to question the morality of God or how we understand morality with God. 
that God has exceptional morality, that yes, ordinarily to kill babies is wrong, but when God says it's okay, it's okay. Some people make that move. I consider that, first of all, I can't do that. I can't do that because it violates my conscience. I know that killing babies is wrong, even if God says so. Mm -hmm. uh, the other problem with that is that leaves the door open for future atrocities. Yeah. And it happened. I mean, this is what happened in um, 16, I forgot the exact year, 1620-something, maybe. Maybe 1620. I can't remember the exact date. The Mystic Massacre in Connecticut when the English colonists murdered 700 of the Pequod tribe, mostly women and children, for their cultivated land. And they told themselves by reading passages like 1 Samuel 15 and Joshua, uh, well, I, this is God's will. They're like the Canaanites and we're like the Israelites, and so it's okay. Um, when, when you say, well, if God tells you to kill babies, it's okay, you've left the door open for atrocities. So I personally can't make You can question the, your understanding of morality. That, if that's your option, okay, but you're making me nervous. Mm -hmm. The other thing you can question is the immutability of God. That is the unchangeable nature of God. When we say that God is immutable, we mean that God doesn't mutate, that God doesn't change over time. But some, that's their move. They say, well, this is something God used to do, but over time, God changed. He doesn't do that anymore. There are people that actually give that answer. Um, yeah. I can't do that either. So that leaves one more option, and that and is... Why is that a problem, just to put a pin on well, it? Well, I think because... First of all, because I'm just a classic theist, 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 too informed by the patristic tradition to play that game. I think if if God is subject to change, then what is the foundation of our faith? And the very ground beneath my feet is moving and unstable. Mm -hmm. So I confess the immutability of God, that God doesn't change. But something does change. But I'll get to that. I'll save that for a moment. Uh, I think what we have to question is our reading of scripture. How do we under, what is it we are reading here? Are we reading um, a God who's commanding genocide or are we reading the inspired, I can use that word, inspired telling of Israel's story of coming to know the living God. But along the way, assumptions are made. God meets them where they are, but they're still going to have assumptions. So if it looks like God might be changing somewhat through the course of the grand story that the Bible tells, well, it's a lot like what, what we might think of as, of as the most obvious fact in nature. And that is that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west and it happens every single day, except that's not true. It looks to me, it looks to everyone for all the world like the sun is rising up over the eastern horizon, moving throughout the sky throughout the day and setting in the west every evening, except none of that's true. Mm -hmm. It's not the sun that's moving. It's we're the ones who are moving. I mean, imagine the first people that had the nerve to go, I've been thinking. <laughs> yeah. Hear me out. I don't think the sun's moving. I think we are. Heretic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he got excommunicated. <laughs> Yeah, but, but what's guy. happening is the Bible itself is chronicling Israel's journey 
toward discovering God as fully revealed in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus is the is the perfect word of God. The Bible is the penultimate word of God. Mm-hmm. And Christ is the judge even of scripture. And see, this is this people labor under a delusion that let's we'll just say the Old Testament, that the Old Testament is univocal. It's not. Ask the Old Testament, does God desire ritual blood sacrifice? Well, I mean, the priests in Leviticus say yes. Moses mm-hmm. will say yes in the Torah. But the psalmists and the prophets begin to come along and say, I'm not so sure about that. Mm-hmm. In fact, in Psalm um, 40, I'll just read it here. I mean, I can show you verses in Leviticus where it says, Sacrifice for sin is required day by day. And now listen to what the psalmist says. Um, In sacrifice and offering, you take no pleasure. You have given me ears to hear you. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Mm. And then later, Hosea will say, speaking in the name of Yahweh, um, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Yes. The Bible doesn't stand above the story it tells, but is fully immersed in it. The Bible itself is on a journey to to discover the true and perfect word of God, which is Jesus Christ. And so, I mean, you may not like that answer, but what one do you like better? (laughs) That God is in recovery from a violent past? Or that, you know, sometimes God just says kill babies, and when God says to do it, it's okay. Mm-hmm. So just to, if we now want to use that to figure out the Samuel story, using that third option of rethinking our reading, would it be something like, okay, Saul and company really want the land that the Amalekites have. What's the best way to do that? Well, tell everyone that God told me to do it. Yeah. And come up with a good reason, like, oh, yeah, they did a bunch of bad stuff in the past. And then can you write that in our special books? <laughs> and then so, <laughs> I mean, that to me is more likely than, oh, now I have to work in child killing into my concept yeah, of God. Right. right. Exactly. We, we don't as Christians, we do not get to read the Old Testament independent of Christ. Hmm. Um. We don't go anywhere without Jesus. See, it's it's I'm back to film again. It's like sixth sense. You think you know what's going on, and then you realize, oh, I did not know what was going on. You know, yeah. this, the I see dead people movie, and oh. um, you think you know what's going on, and then there's that moment at the very end when you go, oh my goodness, I got to watch the whole movie again. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I totally missed it. And so we go, we go, if we're standing with Jesus in 1 Samuel 15, and Samuel says, in the name of Yahweh, Saul, go kill men, women, and children, because they did something 400 years ago. And Jesus says, what do you think of that? <laughs> and I say, well, I think, you know, maybe, maybe, I like Samuel sometimes, but sometimes I think he's an old bigot that can't get over his hatred of Amalekites. Yeah. And Jesus, I think, will say, yeah, you've heard it said, but I say. Right. You've heard it said, but I say. It's it's like how Jesus edits Isaiah 61, where following the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 and the deportation of the Jewish people to Babylon, 
Isaiah begins to Isaiah of the exile begins to prophesy, and and he says, uh, "The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, because the people's hearts are broken. To proclaim liberty to the captives. They're you know, they're captives in exile. Release to the prisoners and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God." And so the, the culmination of God's salvific act as imagined by Isaiah of the exile in the 6th century B.C. is for God to pour out vengeance upon oppressing Gentile nations. But when Jesus is given this text to read from and then speak from in the synagogue in Nazareth, he quotes all of it except he, he omits that final line, the day of vengeance of our God. That's when he rolls it up, rolls it up and sits down, right? Yeah. And and that's not that's not accidental because then what he does for his sermon, he draws upon two relatively obscure stories of God showing mercy to Israel's enemies, that is the Gentiles. The first story from the days of Elijah, where God has mercy on the Zarephath widow and provides for her and you know it's easy enough for people to feel sympathy for a widow but then the 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 ante is up in second kings in the days of elisha when god heals um naaman the syrian general i mean this isn't a widow this isn't a harmless widow this is the mm-hmm. the the five-star general of your enemy army and yeah. god and then Jesus, what's only implicit in the Old Testament text, Jesus makes explicit. And he says, look, folks, there are a whole lot of widows in Israel in the days of Elisha, and God didn't provide for them. He provided for this Gentile woman. Mm-hmm. And there were plenty of lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha, and God didn't heal any of them, but he healed this Syrian, this general, Naaman. And Jesus is making the point, you all that are obsessed with a religion based on vengeance, you are not going to be a part of what God is doing and bringing because the kingdom of God is without that kind of retribution and violence and vengeance. And how did they react to that? Poorly. They, they, that's what angered them. See, if you don't understand what's going on there, you don't understand why are they, why are they trying to throw Jesus off a cliff? These yeah. are people he knows he's grown up with. It's not that he claims to be Messiah or because actually he wasn't, or maybe he was there. The idea that Messiah might come from their hometown is good news. They're down with that. It's when he reveals that he is not going to be a violent Messiah in the model of Judah Maccabeus and bring violent vengeance upon their national enemies. But rather, this kingdom is going to be a kingdom of love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and that everyone is invited to receive that kind of mercy from God. And so religion is at its worst when it becomes vengeance fantasies that we can we project upon our enemies. I think that's what Samuel was doing, and I think it's clearly what the people in Nazareth wanted to do, but Jesus would have none of it. So can I can I ask you? I know um, for for some of our listeners, there's like a lot of paradigm shifts that are probably hitting them throughout this conversation. And the way I've sort of talked about our worldview being constructed is something like a Jenga tower, where certain bricks depend on other bricks. And as you change one, you got to kind of change what you think about this and change what you think about that. One of the threads I'd be interested to to pull on with you is how has your understanding of of hell changed throughout this? Like is it is it a 
a place? Is it a metaphor? It's obviously we people came up with this notion of a, eternal conscious torment somewhere along the way. How has your understanding of hell and its usefulness yeah. in? Can I jump in? Because yeah. um, one of our audience members wrote in oh. to ask just to piggyback. Oh, great! They just want to know even if hell is a real place or whatever. Why won't it be empty? If God would give people a post mortem opportunity, they're confronted with how good God is. Like, oh my gosh, yes, that's what I've been looking for my whole life. I want to be part of that. And yeah. God's like, well, come on in. Yeah. So the, hell's a big subject, and rightfully so. I've written an entire chapter on hell and okay. sinners in the hands of loving God. I, I may write a whole book on it someday. Maybe not. Who knows? But I, I'm going I'm to say some stuff, I'm going to talk about yeah. it. Yeah, but I want to say this first. I'm this is really if you will Google Zond, Zond's a great filter because there's not many of us. No, <laughs> and and hell. Okay, you, you will find a blog post entitled Hell and How to Get There, which is the entire chapter of chapter six of Sinners in the Hands of Living God. It's my hell chapter. Perfect. Check it out, guys. I put it on there on my blog for free. I'm not supposed to do that. Publisher wouldn't like it if they knew I did that. I'm not telling them. (laughs) If they know about it, they can come yell at me or something. But I've already made them money, so they'll be okay. (laughs) So, so you can get you can get that chapter for free. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. My book. I'm not trying to make money here. I'm trying to help. It's a whole topic. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. We know. Let's see. Here's one of the problems we have. The word hell, this word that comes to us from German, Scandinavian, is a word that has become a catch-all word that, that is a word we use for the Old Testament Hebrew sheol, which is simply the place of the dead, the Greek corollary to that, Hades, Gehenna, which maybe we'll talk about, even Tartarus. All of these words get summed up as hell. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is over time, from the from the penning of you know ancient Hebrew text and then the early Christian canonical text, as it journeys through time, that word hell picks up lots of baggage. Mm-hmm. Dante's Inferno, all the way up to Chick Tracks oh, yeah. and the assembly Third of God down the street. Yep. And it's made to carry all of that. And we think that that's what hell is. When, first of all, the Old Testament has no concept of a hell like that at all. No. It's just, it's the place of the dead. It's just the grave. That's all it means. When you get into the New Testament, uh, Hades is also just the place of the dead. I mean, if if I were translating a Bible, I would, and and I would say most modern translations never use the word hell. They'll just Mm -hmm. use Hades, Sheol, Gehenna, Taurus. Gehenna was the garbage dump south of Jerusalem in the Valley of Hinnom. That's Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a metaphor for the ultimate destruction. Mm -hmm. It's the place of of garbage and, you know, burnings and, you know, trying to consume the garbage. So it's the place where we'd say the, the fire is not quenched and the maggots never die or the worms never die. Jeremiah says that Jerusalem is headed there. And sure enough, in 587 BC, the whole place is destroyed and the whole city becomes like Gehenna. It becomes a burning garbage dump. 
mm-hmm. of maggot-ridden corpses and a, a city that's aflame because of what Nebuchadnezzar does that is seen as the judgment of God. That's their interpretation of those events. Then uh, Jesus echoes Jeremiah's words and says, because you are so determined in a violent revolution against Rome, you're, that's going to be repeated. And so when people say Jesus was taught talk more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. Well, yes and no. He, yes, he's talking about an impending disaster that is going to fall upon Jerusalem if they don't embrace the way of peace, but he's not necessarily talking about what you think hell is. So people right. say, to me, yeah, but do you believe in a literal hell? I said, I do. I don't think you do. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in AD 70, we could say this way, Jerusalem literally went to hell. Mm -hmm. And this this is mostly what Jesus is talking about. Um, But that that wasn't a a post-mortem torture chamber chamber for eternity. It's what literally happened. Or, for example, in Luke 13, Jesus is, is, they, they tell Jesus about, uh, this group of uh, was was it a uh, group of Galileans that probably staged some sort of revolt there in the temple, and Pilate executes them, and thus poetically, poetically we could say that their blood was mingled with their sacrifices because they're there to offer sacrifice, and and they asked Jesus about this. Did you hear about that? He said, "Well, do you think they're all worse sinners than anybody else?" I tell you, no. Unless you all rethink everything, repent you're going to perish in the same way. And then Jesus said, and what about those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell? Do you think that they were worse sinners than everyone in Jerusalem? I'll tell you, no, but unless you rethink everything, you're all going to perish in the same way. Jesus Mm -hmm. is not saying, unless you pray the sinner's prayer and get saved, you're all going to suffer a fate worse than death. What he's saying is, if you don't rethink this whole trajectory you are on, toward a violent revolution against Rome, you're all going to die by Roman swords and collapsing buildings. And that's what literally happened. Yeah. 40 Boy, years I so later. easily read into the text, the other view. Yeah. 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 It's easy to do. You bring it to and the text. One more thing. I'm just kind of, let me let the cat, I'm going to say two more things. Cause I don't, I don't like to be drug into hell and <laughs> without yeah, yeah. To say what I want to say about it. Hey, what yeah, you yeah. want to say, man. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, first of all, I, I would not classify myself as a universalist. Okay. Um, but having said that, universalism is not a heresy. Universalism is a minority position that has been held by many throughout church history and probably among the Greek Orthodox church fathers, the Greek fathers, I don't mean Orthodox, among the Greek patristics, the Greek fathers, it was probably the majority opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not a heresy. It's a minority opinion that's always been held. What I, sim- I, I I don't claim that because people then imagine, okay, Hitler's in his bunker. He pulls the trigger, and then he's suddenly in his five-star luxury resort. No, I don't. No. Uh, no. No one gets away with anything. Everything has to be faced. What I do say is that I hold a robust hope that Jesus Christ can restore all things. Mm. Um what I am convinced of is that no one ever sincerely calls upon God for mercy and is refused. Now, you can we can discuss, you know, can the soul become so damaged that it's incapable of calling out for mercy? We can have that discussion. 
but but I don't I do not imagine I cannot imagine God revealed in Christ the God I've come to know in Christ yeah uh, that someone says God have mercy on me a sinner and God says you know if you'd have prayed that two minutes ago we could too have late talked, mate you know, yeah look pal you know yeah. and, and 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 God does not operate in eternal torture chamber I just that's yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's beyond the pale. So, um, but if, but if someone says to me, Brian, well, you know, someone actually a a troll said to me a while back, said, "You're going to hell," and I said, "Probably for a little while." <laughs> that's awesome. Yes. I think we're all going to at some point have to stand mm-hmm. naked before the fiery love of God mm-hmm. and have a deep mm-hmm. evaluation of our lives in the light of Christ, and you know. Mm-hmm. That's nothing more than, you know, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we must pass and, and our works are tested by fire. So mm-hmm. well, um, I love that. And we just um, we had a conversation with Brad Jerzak and Paul oh Young God. on their new book, The Pastor. And yeah. if you get, we recommend you go read that, too. Yeah. But that's the story of someone brutal, going to hell in a way. <laughs> you read The Pasta? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I read it. Oh, yeah. yeah. True. Yeah. I mean, Brad and I, you know, I talk to Brad every day. I've talked to him today. Uh, right. We're, you know, we're the best of buds. That's we, awesome. Our lives are our, our theological collaboration. Yeah, that's great. That's <laughs> and, and great. Right, right. But it's just sitting back there by that chair. Uh, the, what I was doing right before I jumped on with you guys was reading the manuscript of, of Brad's newest book, A More Christlike Word. Yes. Mm. We, he and, mentioned it. He mentioned mm, it. So Yeah, I'm about, I'm about 100 pages into it, loving it. And just right. what you were Brad saying about. And forward for my new book. Oh, great. Right, right. I just, I just, it's, it's, it probably won't come out for close to a year. Okay. But I mean, I'm, it's done. I've written it. It's complete. It's called, uh, what can we do when everything is on fire? And it's really written for those that are going through what some call deconstruction. How yeah, do you go through that and survive? Hmm. Great. Well, we'll keep an ear out for that. Yeah, definitely well like that. Yeah. Okay, one final, if you have time, do you have time for one final question from our audience? Um, so we get this one on quite a bit. If the Jesus way or ethic is characterized by nonviolence or non-retaliation, does that mean that a Jesus follower should never use force or violence to protect an innocent third party? So kind of remove, like, we're fine with you laying down your own life when put to the task but boy i mean the case given is the the armed intruder has kidnapped my family and here i am i have the stopping power with whatever weapon you want to imagine in my hand and i could save my family yeah but it would it would mean violence killing the intruder yeah i yeah i i I think these are i don't know that they're always good faith questions hmm but let I, me I know the person who submitted this one and it, he's really wrestling. He with really it. has been wrestling <laughs> with it for a while. So it is not, it's not a gotcha. Right. Yeah. Um, first of all, just to clarify, I do not call myself a pacifist. Hmm. Pacifism is an ethical position regarding violence that one can adopt apart from Christ. Many have done so. And I may find it admirable. It just doesn't describe me. Uh, I'm really the only label I'm interested in owning is that of Christian, that I'm trying to follow Jesus Christ. And now we can have the discussion of how Christ informs us on the topic of violence. Uh, My book, A Farewell to Mars, is primarily critique of war. I'm not not dealing with issues of 
home invasion. Um, mm-hmm. If you put me into an impossible corner and say, can you imagine that you would use violence to protect someone who is innocent from the harm of a guilty aggressor? Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. Yeah. But you're asking me to imagine something, right? Yeah. Well, look, so then I imagine something else. I mean, if I don't have a gun, so I, I don't even, I don't own a gun. I mean, I'm not a hunter, so I don't need a gun, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, okay, we got a violent intruder and he's coming in here and you, you, you've got the whole situation set up and then you toss it to me. What do you do? Well, this isn't happening, right? This is a fantasy. You want me? Okay. I disarm the intruder with the name of Jesus. Hmm. And having disarmed the intruder with the name of Jesus, uh, I then bring him to faith in Christ. And uh, a few weeks later, I baptize him. And six months later, he's an usher in my church. How about that? You like that one? I mean, you're asking me to, um, you're inviting me into a fantasy. Okay, that's my fantasy. Uh, Can I also fantasize that I would solve the problem with violence? Sure, I could. Mm -hmm. But I choose, you're you're just inviting me into a fantasy. I'm going to imagine it otherwise. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not going to commit myself, though, to someone else's description. So, so you're going to let your wife be raped. That's you. That's more the more common one because that yeah, one's. Right. And I said, no, you're going to do that. But, right. But neither does my fantasy end with me blowing their brains out with a gun. Right. Could I imagine that that would come to that? I suppose I could, but that's not where I choose to go. Yeah, I use I use the power of imagination in a, a different direction. What I can honestly say is. In the, if if God forbid such a moment would ever arise, I believe that Christ will provide the way that I should move. Mm-hmm. Okay, but mm. but really, what I'm critiquing is that I, I'm not going to. Uh, well, they don't want me now. I'm too old. But <laughs> I'm not going to sign up to join the army so I can go to the other side of the world and kill Iraqis. Right. We're not quite sure what reason. That's what right. I'm critiquing. Yeah. Yeah, and just, I don't know, in response to that question, I can imagine what you should do versus what you would do. I think probably what would happen for me in that situation is I would act on instinct in some way, probably black out to some degree, and then sort of come to with the whatever the consequences were and hope that God can be merciful for how difficult of a situation I was just put in. And I have no problem with that. I mean, sometimes when I don't want to have a long discussion, I'll say, okay, I, I kill the son of a gun. And ask God to forgive me. I mean, right. I mean, I'm, I'm not, but that doesn't change my theology. Right, 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 right. Yeah. That 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 Christ calls us to the way of peace, mm-hmm. right? But but yeah. I'm not it, going to. It's be, not a loophole that lets you get out of that call to nonviolence, right? Yeah. It's if it's anything, it's an exception. It's not well, particularly okay. of the kind yeah. that you're worried about with like a premeditated whole war. The other extreme where where. Uh, Okay, because in this extreme circumstance, I have to save my child from a, you know, a murderous kidnapper with using a weapon. Therefore, I need to go to Walmart with my AR-15 just in case. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. In other words, I'm not preparing 
to use violence. Yeah. In the actual moment, I can certainly imagine that I would resort to that. But I'm not yeah. preparing for that. Right. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much for engaging with yeah, a whole slew of questions. Um, <laughs> like we said, listeners, there, there's more that could be said about all of these topics. So do Google it, Zand and Hell, if you want to read that blog post and get into a little more detail. Keep an eye out for the new book that's coming maybe in a year or so. You said it's written it, already, it right? It will be more than a year, but it might okay. be. Okay. I've just submitted right. it. I mean, it's it's done. The, the publisher has it. It's just, you know, it's hard to get them to move as fast as I want them to move. <laughs> Hopefully your publicist yeah. will come up with another catchy title yeah. for this one too. Some other sermon yeah. title. <laughs> yeah. 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 There you go. Well, thanks so much. We really appreciate your time. And uh, thank you everybody for watching. Uh, I mean, I'm just I'm just glad there's people out you out there that are wrestling with this and thinking about it, inviting other people to participate in in this kind of theological journey. I think it's a great thing. I, I bless you because it can be isolating. It can feel lonely. Right. Oh yeah, you don't know if other people are having these same questions. And... Yeah, you think you're the only one, and mm -hmm. and you can be frightened. I mean, well, it's, and, I... and that's why, and especially with the book Water to Wine. Mm -hmm. My book, Watered Wine, that's the book. I mean, I hear from a lot of people, but that's the book where I get, I thought I was the only one. And yeah. which I always say to them, well, you know, you're the third person I've heard from today yeah. about that. So be of good cheer. You're not. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I uh, hope you have a great rest of your day. I don't know what you've got planned, but thank you so much for carving out this much gonna, time for us, mate. I think we're going to go find a Christmas tree. <laughs> Beautiful. That nice. sounds yeah. awesome. Well, All thanks. right. Very have good. a good one, Brian. Take care. God bless you. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.